Hey everyone, welcome to Stock Market Live. I'm Daniel Snyder and you are? I'm Austin Hankwitz. How's it going everyone? If we haven't met yet, if you're new or if you just have no idea who I am because I'm not as cool as Daniel, I create personal finance and investing content. That's like short form videos on TikTok or YouTube uh, all the way out to like, you know, written data analysis on Substack. So we're, at, we're, we're having fun. We're talking about personal finance and investing. And my goal is to make these really like complex, hard to understand topics like earnings calls and all these fun things we're going to be talking about. Super easy to understand and bite size. So I'm really excited to be here with Daniel. We have a lot, on, a lot to talk about. And I have a green background today, which is super exciting to me. Yeah, man. Now let's dive into it. Obviously, there's we're we're starting to roll into the midst of the earnings season, right? Like as you just mentioned, you teed it up perfectly. Um, so as we start to talk about these earning things that we want to cover today, we want to invite everyone that's tuning in right now. If you want to leave a comment in the chat box or under the video, like, subscribe, do all those things, but like interact with us during this because we really want to help you with this. Um, obviously, we have you know what what Mike Saul likes to say in his his Monday webinars that he does for Seeking Alpha all the time: the curse of knowledge. Right. So we'll just be spitting. We're going back and forth about data and charts and everything else that we're watching specifically and how it translates and how we're thinking about it. And it might be very beneficial for you. But if we say something and you have a question, jump in the chat, let us know, leave a comment. We're going to get to those as we're uh, rolling along. And then we're going to get to our special guest, Bertrand, later in the show today. And we're going to bring him on. He has a huge history background of Silicon Valley and tech investing. So mentioning the word tech, let's talk about Netflix earnings right? It's on everyone's minds. Um, Josh, we got Josh joining us too. Josh is in the background. He is running this show for us. Josh, why don't you go ahead and throw up that first chart for us today um, of Netflix's stock price. We pulled this this morning around 1030. Obviously, earnings came out last night and, you know, 1 million subscriber loss. Austin, what do you make of this? What do you think about the Netflix um, price reaction to this earnings call? Yeah. So, I mean, you know, prices, I think it was up a couple bucks or a couple percentage points, something crazy uh, from this. And yeah, you know, they lost 1 million subscribers. They're projecting to lose 2 million subscribers. So I guess that's like a good thing, but still you lost a million subscribers. Um, and I thought was a couple interesting things in their, in their earnings call is they beat on their EPS guidance, but it was not because like a good reason to beat. It's not because they made more money or more profits. They beat it because of a non-cash unrealized gain from a foreign currency volatility, right? 60% of Netflix revenue comes from outside of the United States, which makes their, you know, this is going to negatively impact them if assuming, you know, the United States dollar will continue to strengthen in the coming months. So, I mean, to me, I'm thinking Netflix, they're, they're kind of scrambling, right? You, you read through their earnings call. It's a lot of, you know, back and forth about how they're trying to, you know, introduce ad supported video and how they're trying to, you know, I, I think it was in a Latin markets they talked about in uh, adding an extra seat for like three bucks a month or something if you're sharing passwords. I mean, to me, I'm seeing a lot of like excuses per se on maybe why this is happening, what's going on here, why we lost subs and stuff like that. Yeah, that, that point you just mentioned too, I don't think anybody really realized that 60% of their revenue came from overseas. And just as you were touching about it, on, that was my first thought was, oh, if the dollar continues to increase in strength, this might hurt them. But then I also had the other thought because my brother works in the entertainment industry of, of touring around the country with, with specifically country artists and a few others. But he always talks about how during hard times, people still like to go see artists perform or they still like to go to the movie theater. They still have, they like to hold on to something as a consumer that makes them feel good or forget about what's going on and the potential recession that we might have coming down the road. I'm wondering if we're kind of overthinking that, 
and that people might actually want to hold on to Netflix to just turn on that TV at the end of the day and try to forget about everything that's going on. Well, to your point completely, Daniel, that actually was a question in their earnings call and, and their CEO took your side. He believes that, you know, people are, are they're already paying for this Netflix. It's, it's relatively affordable. And, and you can see blockbuster hits, like big movie titles go straight to Netflix versus, you know, having to buy six tickets for the mom, the four kids and the dad at a movie theater. Then you got to get the $19 popcorn and the $42 drinks, right? You just stay at home. You got your own, you got your own popcorn and you guys are doing that. So I kind of agree with you there. I think that, you know, Netflix is, I wouldn't say recession proof by any means, but I guess what I'm saying is, I would be surprised if they have a crazy amount of people leave Netflix because of this looming recession or if things get really tight. I mean, if, I, if things are tight, I'm not really saying, how do I save money? Oh, I'm going to you know, cut my $17 a month Netflix subscription. It's like, how am I going to drive less? How am I going to you know, do something bigger than just my $17 a month? So to your point, I, I think that's a really good take. Yeah, I got it. Josh, let's go to the next slide. The first thing that came to my mind when uh, listening to the Netflix earnings call and everything else was remembering that Bill Ackman had sold at a $400 million loss. And I, I can't imagine that he's feeling, you know, obviously he probably sold, he sold back on April 20th, I believe. Actually, Josh, go back to that first chart for me real quick, if you don't mind, because I, I think I highlighted, yeah, right there in the middle, April 20th, 2022, that was kind of the news that broke that he had sold at that point, but he, he had bought those shares at the beginning of the year. So obviously he took a big haircut, and then not only did the earnings happen, as well as his announcement that he sold, I mean, you saw the stock plummet, as you see right there. And we really haven't climbed back up. I mean, the 207 region that we're kind of hanging around, uh, that was 1030 this morning. I, I, I don't know where we're at right now. Um, you know, it's not like it, it, he's still protected himself. But at the same time, if, the, if this is true, right, if, if we're not going to see subscriber loss as bad as it is, I'm wondering if he might reinstate that position. Yeah, I mean, I, I would be surprised. Um, to me personally, I could certainly see like where Netflix is coming from with like the light at the end of the tunnel. We've got ad supported this. We've got, you know, Microsoft is now our partner in helping us sell these ads exclusively. You know, recessions looming. I just, I could see it happening. But you know, honestly, kind of like if we, you know, kind of compare this to what happened with Facebook, right? It's like they're kind of now in this, um, in my opinion, part of their business life cycle where they've got to really innovate and reinvest into their business. And we're, you know, I, they just acquired an animation studio to help with that. Right. And so they really have to reinvest in their business to reinvigorate that revenue and reinvigorate that margin expansion. And I just don't think it's going to happen over the next, you know, six, nine, maybe in 12 months. Yeah. It's probably, I mean, that's something that doesn't happen overnight, but I, I got to ask you awesome. So you're a streaming guy, right? We just talked about this last week with cable cutting, you have your streaming services. Um, with the introduction of ads and the new tier sections of you can pay a lower price, we're going to show you ads. I know Hulu does this already. Do you think people realize that you're not only paying for, con you're, you're paying to have ads delivered to you, which is a weird business model if you really think about it, right? The content is there, but you're also sitting through two and a half minutes of ads, you know, every 15 minutes potentially. Right. And so like, it's actually funny. I was going to mention this and I'm glad you brought this up. I like to watch Shark Tank. I love watching Shark Tank. You know, Mark Cuban, see Mr. Wonderful up there, talk about their stuff. I think it's awesome. And I, I, I can watch any season, any episode on Hulu, but despite it still not being like a live show with like live commercials, I still have to watch these ads. And so like sitting through and it's something that's a two minute, 30 second ad and it pops up every 15 minutes. And I'm like, this kind of sucks. Um, and, and I'm still paying my $70 a month to have that. So to your point, like, I, I think 
it's kind of the new norm. I think I think people are going to realize like this is the new normal with consuming streaming like streamable content is you have to pay to even access it. Plus, maybe digest these ads along the way. Yeah. All right. Uh, hey, Josh, can you throw up slide three real quick? I just want to touch on this because um, Austin did bring it up. The acquisition of the animation studio that you're talking about, Animal Logic. This was announced, which I don't know if people realize how big this is, right? Animal Logic. If you don't know who they are, they do the Lego Movie movies. They they did Pets movies. They they are such an animation powerhouse. And I'm kind of wondering with. Netflix trying to compete with the likes of Disney and Universal, right? Universal has Minions. Disney has Mickey Mouse as well as everything else. And I don't feel like Netflix, and I think they announced it, or they said this too, it's like they don't have that staple that they feel comfortable enough saying like, this is going to be a multi-generational thing and we feel now comfortable. And I'm wondering if this is the angle they're trying to do. You have any thoughts on that? Um, I mean, I think you're right on the money, right? I think that acquire, like this is one of those things where, and, you know, to your point, you've got uh, Disney, you got to compete with, uh, you know, Universal Studios. And, and what is interesting too, you got to compete with YouTube, right? You got to compete with mm -hmm. all of that stuff that's also happening over there. It's like, it's an attention play. And so in my opinion, this is such a no brainer. Netflix had to do this, right? Netflix has to have a staple. They have to say happy feet, Legos movie, you know, uh, whatever the other you know, movies are or the, or the other titles that, that um, uh, Animal Logic has, has created and introduced. I think that they, they need that. This is, is very needed for Netflix and to continue to differentiate and build that brand and, and show people that they have something to bring to the table and they can compete with those heavy hitters. This was much needed. Yeah, I, I love, uh, we'll keep an eye on this one, but let's keep it moving. Let's go into the top items of the week. I want to go ahead and kick this thing off layoffs.fyi tracker Josh, if you go to the next slide, I want to show everybody this. This is a really interesting website that was sent to me where it's literally tracking pretty much in real time anytime a new layoff is released to the news. And not only that, but it breaks it down on the percentage of the company of employees. It breaks down the number if it has that. It links to the original source of the article, the industry that you're seeing them within. I mean, I, with all the, the talk around unemployment and how the Fed is expecting the unemployment to take up and we're thinking about recession fears and inflation and how inflation usually comes down with unemployment and all these things, this really uh, kind of took a, a, a moment of, what am I trying to say? It really came across as like, oh, I'm going to pin this to my browser and check it every day because it's just so fascinating to me. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. I think this list is going to have to grow substantially in order for inflation to come down. And that's kind of what I'm waiting on. You know, at the top, you see there are 364 startups with layoffs, uh, 53,604 employees laid off. That's still such a small number. It is small. It is such a small number. And, and I think what's interesting is like how this specifically says startups with layoffs, right? Like, like, I mean, I, I, I can kind of see it on my screen here, but it's like a little bit smaller, but I'd imagine as you zoom into that, you'll begin to see smaller companies per se. You won't see those big, obviously the, the big, 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 you know, S and P 500, fortune 500 companies on this list. It's, it's my very startup um, which is, I mean, if you think about it, like those are the first ones to go when there's, when there's, right. um, volatility in right. the markets for yeah. sure. And like the, the one I want to point out is so Vimeo, right. That was just announced, uh, two days ago there at the top. Um, you have open C on here, which is obviously the new risky one that you're kind of talking about. They, they announced laying off 20% of their workforce. I mean, it, it's definitely going to start from the bottom and go to the top. Cause you know, generals die last. Um, so that's that. What did did you had a top item for this week, didn't you? Um, yeah, we were uh, you know talking about earnings and, and whatnot, and I think it'd be cool to kind of think about you know we tons of earnings are happening this week, 
before we jump into like speculating on what those earnings look like, I wanted to really talk through like two main callouts of last week's earnings. So the first call out for me was like JP Morgan's uh, Jamie Dimon sort of backpedaling on what he said during their investor day a few months ago. We all remember this statement it was in every headline, him saying that, current, that, that hurricane is right there down the road and coming our way. We don't know if it's a minor one or a super storm Sandy, but you better brace yourself regardless. This quote was on every headline everywhere, right? And, and now what, what's interesting is Mike Mayo of Wells Fargo chimed in during the most recent earnings call last week and said this, Hey, Jamie, after Investor Day, you said a hurricane is on the horizon, but today you're holding firm. You're sending, you know, $7 billion of an expense guidance for 2022. It's like you're acting as if there's sunny skies ahead. You're out here buying kayaks, surfboards, and wave runners just before the storm. Is it tough times ahead or not? And so Jamie responded with this. He said, listen, consumers are in good shape. They're spending money. They have more income. Jobs are plentiful. They're spending 10% more than last year, almost 30% more than pre-COVID. Businesses, you talk to them, they're in good shape. They're doing fine. We've never seen business credit be better like this ever in our lifetimes. And that's the current environment. So Daniel, I want to get your take. Like, where are we? Are we in a hurricane? Are we staring at a hurricane right now? Or are we all buying jet skis and kayaks? Like, like how, how, how are you feeling about all this? Awesome. Hold on. Can we, can we first just acknowledge though? Hey, hey Josh, chart off. Um, when has a weatherman ever gotten a call right? Yeah. Right. Like, no, 100%, 100%. <laughs> in your daily life, like obviously they try to help you predict, but you're never ever going to get it right 100% of the time. So you got to give Jamie a little bit of credit. And I, who was I speaking to the other week? I think it might have been George Ball, um, chairman at uh, Sanders and Morris Harris. And he's, he's friends with JP Diamond. He was telling me about the, the um, analogies that Diamond likes to use. And, and he's very cautious when he uses these things. And I think he led himself some caution, but also, you're talking about a storm coming and your expenses are still going to maintain at seven billion. Like, are you kidding me? Yeah. Like, if you 100%. actually believe, I get what this guy is saying. I mean, if, if you think that troubling times are ahead, you're going to cut expenses. That's what people Absolutely. do. It's what management are supposed to do. So I don't know if I answered your question. I don't know. I mean, look, this is the same uh, question of hard landing versus soft landing. Mm-hmm. Are we going to mm-hmm. get a soft landing with housing starts? numbers we got this morning as well as mortgage applications being pretty much at the low since 2000. I mean, it's not looking favorable. I mean, consumers definitely pulling back. We've had conversations on Seeking Alpha about are we talking ourselves into a recession? Is that Mm -hmm. getting so ingrained Mm -hmm. into our psychological mindset? We have the market ripping to the upside this week. And is that a bear market rally or are we finally catching a bottom? Time's going to tell, right? No one's going to get it right. Because if you got it right, well, you'd be retired on a beach off the coast of Italy. Let's be honest. Hey, that's that's everyone's goal, right? And so to your point, I mean, I'm on the hurricane side with you, right? It's like, you know, we're, we're seeing all over the place now that, that companies are reporting their earnings. And as of last week, 77% of the companies in the S&P 500 that had reported their earnings cut their guidance for the remainder of the year, which brings me to the second topic I want to talk about, which was uh, a company who crushed their earnings and raised their guidance, which was United Health Group. This company is my largest holding in my portfolio since like November. I, I worked in M&A in healthcare for several years. I really understand the space. So here are a couple of the biggest highlights from their earnings report. So United Health group, which is, you know, different business segments all into one now, uh, that the, the revenue came in north of $80 billion for the quarter, up 13%. Profits came in north of $7 billion for the quarter, up 19%. And medical cost ratio, which is, you know, the money they spend taking care of patients, uh, came down 10, I'm sorry, 100 basis points. So one whole percent driving those profits higher. And so as we think 
about how that translates into profits with United Healthcare business segment. Revenue was 62 billion, up 12%, but profits, mainly driven by this medical cost ratio coming down, were at 4 billion, up 26%, right? 12% bump in revenue, but a 26% bump in profits. Optum, which is their technology business segment, revenue was 45 billion, up uh, 15%, where their profits were up 18% to 3 billion. So here's the interesting call out though about Optum. 30% uh, increase in uh, revenue per customer, right? Revenue per customer is up 30% year over year. And this was driven by the number of customers served in their value-based arrangements, right? That's the kicker, value-based healthcare. That's, in my opinion, what's gonna catalyze the next $300 billion in annual revenue for this company over the coming decade, specifically from seniors. Nearly 4 million mm. people turn 65 every single year uh, as you know, baby boomers, right? It's called the silver wave right now. Tons of healthcare spend, uh, is, is spent during the last years of someone's life. And someone has to collect on that spend. And we'll see that spending become increasingly more effective with value-based care. Um, United Health Group is, is certainly positioning th themselves incredibly well to ride the silver wave in the coming years with Optum. And we're, we're, we're clearly seeing that now translate to the bottom line. Man, those are really great points. I'm actually, I'm just glancing down here, looking on Seeking Alpha. I mean, United Health has a strong buy from the Seeking Alpha quant rating. And I mean, the competitors... We'll see, but you got a really great point. I love that you pointed that out. The 4 million people every single year turning 65. I mean, the baby boomer generation. I think that's kind of what, you know, as you see people like Elon talking about, hey, the population is declining because of this. Like, how are we going to take care of the older generation? This is a weird part of uh, the, the time that we're in, right? And like, you look at Japan and what happened over there, where it's just like, they're, they're kind of were exactly what we're going into. They have this older generation, not enough younger people to take care of them kind of worrisome a little bit, but as we continue to advance in healthcare and you have companies like this and you have the innovators within technology helping the healthcare system uh, take care of this additional increase in population getting older and retiring and, and, and um, having more issues, hip replacements, whatever it might be. I mean, there's a light at the end of the tunnel, but it might take us some time to get there. And I think you've got a great pick here actually with UNH. I appreciate that. Uh, let's jump into some charts, shall we? Let's do it. Let's do it. Who, what do we have up first? Let's take a uh, look. I don't remember. I think it might be Josh, yours. throw up that chart. Oh, Tesla. Yep. So Tesla earnings, obviously we're watching Tesla earnings after the close today. I went ahead and grabbed this this morning from Seeking Alpha. Um, I threw on the 50 day and the 200 day moving average. I know those are the ones that people really like to pay attention to. Obviously you had the death cross there back. Uh, what is that? Beginning of June that happened. Um, I don't know. I think in regards to Tesla, I know what I'm going to be watching. I'm going to be watching, uh, you know, what's going on with Texas, what's going on with Germany and those factories, what's going on, not with just like, we know that they're going to probably beat on revenue, right? They're selling tax credits to other companies. They get a good source amount of income from there. But what I am curious about is Elon tweeted not too long ago that, um, you know, Tesla's car prices are going to come back down as yes. commodity prices come back down. And so I'm kind of... Thinking, I mean, obviously he sent out the other tweet too about like how he's fearful of where the economy is going. We might be going to recession. Who knows? He was putting out all of his warning signs. Um, but I think, you know, copper and nickel and all these things that go into the batteries of the car and they're, they're very material or commodity heavy business. So I think he's kind of like, oh, gave a few hints that they might be some, you know, weird undertow things going on with this earnings this quarter. But it's like, it's not like this company is not going to bounce back. It's just kind of like, how does the market react? Um, and that's what I want to keep an eye on. 
today after the close and, and maybe we can recap this next week. I love it. Let's, uh, let's certainly add that to the watch list and we'll recap it next week. I'm here for it. All right, you're up. Josh, next slide. So last week we were talking about deal days, right? We had Target deal days, we had Walmart deal days, and we had Amazon Prime days. And so as we were talking kind of earlier here about Jamie Dimon's, uh, I'll, I'll quote it again here. It's, uh, it, it's him saying, um, you, know, consumers spend, you know, consumers are in a good shape. They're spending money. They have more income. Jobs are plentiful. Spending's up 10% more than last year. And we kind of see that reflected in Amazon Prime Day sales. Uh, Amazon Prime Day sales were nearly uh, $12.1 billion. That's up 8% sequentially. It's pretty close to this 10% number that, that Jamie shared with us. Uh, over this two-day shopping spree, more than 300 million items were sold, up from about 250 million items in 2021. Prime members around the world purchased more than 100,000 items on average per minute during this event, right? Top selling categories. Now, this is what's interesting. In order, right, from, from top to, to obviously not top, uh, Amazon branded devices, consumer electronics, and home goods. The top five items sold during the Prime Day event, the, the Fire TV sticks, the Echo Dots, the Blink cameras and doorbells, the Amazon gift cards, and Ring video doorbells. That's right. Top five items sold were all owned by Amazon. And think about it like this, right? When you own the layout of the website on Prime Day, mm -hmm. you can certainly present whatever items as the big sale items on the front page and beat out all the competition, right? Amazon owns the ecosystem of the Prime Day event. Therefore, they have the power to present customers with their products that are going to pad their pockets. And as Elon Musk, we talked about him tweeting, right? As Elon Musk once tweeted, those who control the memes control the universe. And I think Amazon's controlling a lot right now. Yeah, that's a great point. I mean, Amazon does that, but also Apple with the App Store, right? It happens everywhere. Google with 100%. search results. I mean, there was whole lawsuits about Google back in the day ranking their sites over others, right? Like it's, it's a reoccurring theme. Absolutely. Absolutely. And uh, it's certainly reflected in, in Amazon Prime Day sales. So, you know, last week we were thinking about this was a real good you know, in real time gauge of consumer sentiment, how they were spending, what, what that looks like. And as we saw, seems like it's pretty good. I guess Jamie's right. Consumer spending's up. People are okay to spend frivolously on, on prime day, uh, specifically with things that don't exactly, you know, I, I mean, I don't know about you guys, but I feel like Amazon branded devices, consumer electronics and home goods don't exactly add to my, my day to day. But I think it's a really cool chart to, uh, to talk through nonetheless and to keep in the back of the mind as we continue to like navigate this uncertainty of, are we in a recession? Are we talking into existence? Are we at a market bottom? Really what's going on? Yeah, great point. Now, I want you to get to this next chart, though, because I love what you're sharing here. Um, and then actually, I have a counterpoint to you about consumer spending. We'll get to that in a second. But walk me through here, because this is, I'm really glad you pointed this out. This is really interesting. Why don't you share with our audience what this is? Yeah. So, and I, I think this is more of a discussion too, Daniel, right? So like, like the next chart is we're seeing a lot of social media companies report their earnings this week. And according to Seeking Alpha, which we can see here on this tool, is we're seeing a massive discrepancy between what Seeking Alpha's quant rating system is spitting out versus what Wall Street is rating these companies. And just yesterday, Daniel, you posted on your LinkedIn talking about the quant rating system, absolutely nailing Apple's stock price decline. So how are we feeling now about this like major disconnect here with these social media stocks? we got Wall Street saying they're going to the moon. We have the Seeking Alpha quant rating saying, hey guys, uh, things might not be as good as it seems. So I, I think it's a really interesting call out and something to talk about nonetheless. 
Yeah, let's break this down. So the quant system, what is the quant system? The quant system is a computer algorithm. There's no human involvement within this, except for when the algorithm was created and it pulls all the data from all these underlying metrics of companies, compares it against the peers of the same sector and spits out these grades, which helps you as an investor really understand how these companies stack up within their industry and if they might be a buy or a sell or a hold at this moment in time. The interesting thing about Wall Street analysts, though, is think about the analysts are relying on communication from these corporations, right? Management can sort of skew. And I, I kind of, in the back of my mind, I, I thought about this with Netflix as we were talking about at the top is, what if Netflix put out that 2 million subscriber number last earnings to spook the market, to bring the stock price down for management to buy, Right. It mm -hmm. might happen. Mm -hmm. It could possibly happen, but they're not going to tell the Wall Street analysts beforehand, hey, this is what we're doing. You know, conflict of interest, their own little game they play. So with Wall Street analysts, they're relying on that corporate communication. So of course, the grades might come out different like you're seeing here. Like, I mean, I don't know about you, but I do like Google. Google is a whole by the quant. Etsy is, you know, I think uh, Bertrand is going to touch on this. Etsy has a new private investor coming in. Spotify, I'm a user of Spotify, but think about the valuation of where we're at, right? Apple Music is their direct competitor. And you start to break down what Spotify has versus Apple has. And I've started doing research on this is like Spotify wanted to have those exclusive deals for podcasts. And that's why they're pushing them so hard because that is their own form of original content. Um, Apple has pretty much gone out to every licensing company around the world and said, Hey, whatever music you're giving to Spotify, we wanted it too. So it's like you have, and, and obviously money talks. So they're like, yeah, and, and you're Apple. So Apple is pulling away uh, subscribers from Spotify. And so that's where it's kind of like, Hmm, maybe the quant score is onto something here. Why is wall street analysts still a buy on Spotify? Where's the growth opportunity? Are they going to video? Like there's so many right, already in right. video competition. I don't see it. Right. Maybe there's something there that I'm missing, but that's kind of the breakdown here is the quant score gives you the computer algorithm, no human interference. Let's look at the historical data. Let's look at the valuations. Let's see how it compares to other companies within the same sector. And that's kind of helping you rank as an investor to say, oh, this valuation is way too high. I should wait till the multiple comes down, wait till the PE comes down, whatever it might be, um, or the EV to sales or the EBITDA, whatever it might be. It kind of gives you that little heads up. Absolutely. And I think uh, when we reflect on this, maybe we'll add this to the watch list as well to discuss and reflect upon next week after these companies have reported those earnings. You know, we can look back at this and say, you know what, the quant uh, certainly saw something with Spotify because perhaps they missed earnings or, you know, perhaps this happened with Etsy or perhaps this happened with Twitter. Um, it will be cool to reflect on this for sure. Yeah. Let's go ahead and run through these last two and get Bertrand in here. So Josh, hit me with the next line. This is my counterpoint to use, even though consumer spending is high, I mean, the University of Michigan came out with this consumer sentiment survey, right? Lowest, it's been pretty much since 2008. So mm -hmm. I'm kind of curious, like, when it comes to spending, are we at the tail end of it? That's kind of what I'm watching. Uh, I hope everybody else watches that as well. Um, and let's keep going. This is the last thing I just want to highlight to people of how volatile this environment is. So this, uh, if you watched last week, you remember we showed you this last week. This is the updated FedWatch tool for what the market is expecting from Powell and the Fed next week with the interest rate hike. And so this is where we're at now, 69.1% expecting, I think this is the same, yeah, 75 basis point hike. Um, let us let me show you the last week's. Josh, go to the next slide. This was last week's. It was under 50% for the 75 basis point. The inflation mm -hmm. number came mm -hmm. in hot. Everybody was freaking out. This is the market we're in. It's volatile as all get out. It's going to continue to be volatile as get out. We're going to be in wait and see mode, but 
All right, let's go ahead and wrap this up. Josh, why don't you throw that poll up for me real quick before we bring in Bertrand? So here's a poll for everybody watching right now. Thank you all for tuning in, by the way. Reminder, if you have questions as we're talking, feel free to leave them in the chat. We will get to them in real time, and we will ask our Marketplace author as well, who is an expert in the tech industry. So would you invest in the tech sector today? Yes, no, not this exact moment, but maybe soon. We're getting some of the answers here. Go ahead and respond for us. We'll give it one or two more seconds. A lot of people are saying not this exact moment, but maybe soon. Interesting. Okay. Oops. Kind of going back and forth. No, nope, that seems to be consensus. All right. We're going to go ahead and end it there. Oh, 40, 40 split between yes and not this exact moment, but maybe soon. Interesting. I mean, Interesting. I'm not here to sway anybody, but after Google did do their stock split, I picked up a couple shares. So I know, like Google at where these I'm levels. at right I said now. It last week. I said it last week. I'll say it again. I like Google at these levels. It's just a I company do. that continues to innovate. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely, man. They're full of growth. We can go back to that. But let's go ahead and bring Bertrand into this uh, conversation. Why don't you go ahead and join us on screen? We got a question in the meantime uh, from Steven over here on YouTube. I saw that Michael Burry is going long tech stocks like Meta and Apple in his latest 13F. Okay, so not much a question, but a great point out as well. Thank you so much for tuning in today, Steven, and pointing that out. I mean, Michael Burry, Right. I, the guy has called a lot, right? He had Tesla puts that were wrong at one point, though, and he kind of closed those out for a loss. So definitely got to take it for a grain of salt. There he is, the man, the myth, the legend, Bertrand. Thanks for joining us today. Hey, gentlemen. Good to, good to be here. So why don't we go ahead and just take a second. Why don't you guys go ahead and give everybody just a brief, you know, history of your background and what your service is on Seeking Alpha Marketplace. Um, yeah, let's start with that. Of course, yeah. Um, so for those who don't know me, I've been writing on Seeking Alpha for a bit uh, under the name App Economy Insights. That's uh, how you probably came across some of my articles. Uh, but my background is in finance. Uh, my career started in 2007, so I guess on the cusp of uh, a pretty rough time for the market. And uh, uh, I was at uh, PricewaterhouseCoopers, big, uh, big four audit, uh, financial audit. Uh, and after a few years, I uh, was recruited by a gaming company. So that's where I spent really the past 12 years. Uh, it's kind of molded my brain into uh, thinking about technology and gaming. And uh, I was in charge of financial planning and analysis. I was also in charge of uh, anything related to corporate strategy. So of course, deciding where we invest money, where we really push the company forward. And I'm not gonna teach you anything here. Gaming has been at the forefront, you know, of uh, uh, everything related to, uh, basically, if you think about it, the past 15 years, we are 15 years into the great transition to mobile, social, uh, and generally speaking, just this, uh, this new wave of cloud, uh, cloud computing. And so, when you think about gaming, you have the first adoption to free-to-play, first adoption to mobile, right? They were, they were the leading factor here for consumer adoption. Uh, but also anything related to social started with gaming. We remember the farm bill days, right? So uh, watching all those trends evolve, have real take in a trend uh, in the market. And there is somewhat of an implication here is that when you partake in a technology trend like this, um, well, as I just said, 15 years, right? Since the launch of the, the first iPhone, uh, and it's still playing out as we speak, right? So those trends take a while to develop and you can still be late, right? You could 
you could, we talked about Netflix today, you could buy Netflix when Stranger Things season one was released in 2016 and you would still double your money and beat the market in the past six years. So you, you can be late. Those things develop really over a long time. The question is which ones are worth investing in uh, and because they are not all worth pursuing, but they are, this is really what I've been focusing on. So focused on um, anything that follows that pattern of embracing mobile and social and cloud, uh, benefiting necessarily you know, from uh, uh, those markets that have a 10, 15, 20% CAGR uh, projected over the next 10 years. So might as well invest where the wind is in your back, uh, benefiting from those trends transitioning. And at the same time, identifying the winners within those trends to really make sure that uh, you, you're gonna have those, uh, we like to call multi-baggers, right? But really those outsized winners that drive a portfolio performance. Yeah, so we're talking about all things mobile, all things app, right? Which includes Netflix, includes Meta, it includes Match.com, Bumble, all the ones that were just listed on that list, right? That uh, Austin shared with us. Um, so Bertrand, I wanna start off by asking you, what are you watching like a hawk right now in this market? The, basically, there is, after 15 years in this uh, uh, transition to the mobile economy, there are a lot of things that are shifting in the, the way people perceive the role players. So if you look at, uh, you just mentioned earlier how uh, Google is being challenged, Apple is being challenged when it comes to their uh, monopoly or uh, just the way they, they take such a big market share. Uh, what what I, I'm like to focus on is really trying to think about not just those flagship apps that we're all familiar with, but also the infrastructure that powers it, because uh, there is a lot of uh, opportunities for a uh, picks and shovel plays, right? There is an underlying technology that powers all these apps and that is here to stay. And we can talk about cybersecurity, we can talk about infrastructure in general, cloud computing servers, but all those things are really what has been powering the transition to the app economy and they matter just as much, right? So it's not just on the consumer facing side of things, but it's also on the back end. And so when I look right now at ways I wanna prioritize my investment strategy, I try to think about businesses that can uh, basically withstand the slowdown that everybody is seeing coming. You know, the consensus is a recession at this point. So I like to look back, great recession, you know, the, the worst since the Great Depression of, of the 1930s and try to see who got hit at the time and to what extent the sales force of the world or Adobe, how did they do back then? Because it's gonna educate a little bit how or whether or not I should be willing to put money to work today in companies like that or the companies that were like Salesforce back then to decide whether or not it's, that's a smart move. So I really like to walk back uh, in history, uh, try to see if I can gauge something, learn something from uh, previous mistakes that maybe people have made back then to try to adjust and tweak a little bit my portfolio strategy. I love it. I love it. And Daniel, if you don't mind me hopping in here to, to ask a question, you know, we talked about Netflix a little bit. Um, something that when I was reading through their earnings call today that really kind of made my ears perk up was, you know, they used Microsoft as their sort of partner here with their ad supported um, kind of partnership and then how, the, how they're launching that. Do you think that they chose Microsoft at all because of this 
pending Activision Blizzard acquisition. We know Netflix wants to jump into um, gaming. We know that obviously they're, they're, they're spending cash on animation studios. Do you think that at all is going to play a role here in maybe in uh, Netflix's growth strategy going forward? I, I like your thinking here, Austin. I really like it because uh, basically if you think about uh, the, the social dynamics, the power dynamics, they hired, uh, Netflix hired Mike Verdu, who's a former electronic arts and Kabam uh, leader who was basically setting things up at the company with some free, free mobile game, right? So it's a very like early stage venture. However, uh, most people have reacted with the Microsoft deal thinking, oh, the reason why they are choosing them is because they are not competing directly, right? The way uh, Comcast would. However, there is also uh, who the real competition of Netflix is, which uh, Reed Hastings had said before, is Fortnite, right? It's not just Paramount Plus or Hulu, uh, what have you. It's also just where people decide to spend every day these two, three hours of leisure time. And so Microsoft has actually, with Game Pass, a very big subscription product. Uh, it's about 25 million, million subscribers. Uh, and they pay, you know, 10 to 15, depending on the tier uh, they choose. And so this is bigger than Paramount Plus, for sure. And this is revenue-wise bigger than Hulu, right? So if you think about that, there are synergies there. I don't know what shape it could take. You know, it could be if you're a Netflix subscriber, guess what? You have Game Pass included, or you have maybe Game Pass for only five, five bucks more than your current subscription. Mm -hmm. I could see how mm -hmm. there are tremendous synergy potential there from a, a overall entertainment place. Microsoft with Xbox has been forever targeting the living room. Uh, there is a play here for Microsoft for sure. Uh, and, and for Netflix, you know, could they switch from AWS to Azure? That's also a hypothetical here of things they could consider. Um, but I, I just like the move investing in the open internet. I'm a trade desk investor as well as a Google investor. So I kind of eat a, a, a old buffet is interesting for me, but I like to spread my bets basically and make sure that I'm exposed to all these trends. But I do like the potential in terms of synergies as Microsoft builds up their ad tech capacity. I love Can it. I and actually, Daniel, I, don't, I hope you don't mind me chiming in for one more quick yeah, question. Uh, you know, we were talking about picks and shovels there for a moment. And, and I'm sure, you know, you're very into the app economy. Very, you understand Facebook. You understand social very well. Um, we, we, we saw Facebook, reaffirm that they want to invest tens of billions of dollars into their future if that's through data centers if that's through you know infrastructure right to, to build the metaverse and to me that that's a well who are those customers who's who's getting that 30 billion dollars are they publicly traded like like what have you thought about that at all and and, and like have you maybe you know figured out who those picks Isn't and shovels NVIDIA? are going to be is it NVIDIA? Gotta be, I don't, they've got to be a huge what, what's your thoughts Bertrand? yeah so they, they've partnered with nvidia on that supercomputer uh, that they're working on. There, there are so many players that are going to be impacted. And you know, because of the way I invest, which is I, I'm interested in not just the next one, two years, but also like the overall trend five plus, uh, 10 plus years, uh, usually that kind of uh, questioning will not be a top of mind for me because it, it would only impact it. the okay. short term, right? If that makes sense. So, but, and typically we learned, you know, the past two days with that, that bill that's gonna help chip makers, right? Chip manufacturers. That's mm -hmm. a 50 billion dollar bill, 15 billion, even though, you know, 20 to 30 will go to Intel, 
that's that's not a big deal in the grand scheme of things. If you want to invest in Intel for the next 15 plus years, that those subsidies will matter, but they are not this changing or they, they don't change the entire landscape that much. So I like to try to, it's very hard to do by the way, but I like to take a piece of news and always ask myself that will I care about this 10 years from now or will it really change everything? Um, however, I love what, um, the way Mark Zuckerberg is thinking about this, because again, this is going back to that 15 years trend of the transition to the app economy. Uh, Zuckerberg has seen with Apple what happened when they had to, they depended on another ecosystem to drive their business. So now mm -hmm. they are willing at all costs to build their own, right? And that makes perfect sense. They have to make this investment. It's not necessarily as much of a strategic initiative and more of a, a survival. Uh, requirements, right? So uh, who, who's going to benefit? A lot of people are going to benefit, uh, but it also depends on so many things, you know, that who gets along with who, what makes, makes might make sense last minute. Uh, but to answer your question, it doesn't necessarily drive my investment decisions. Got mm -hmm. it. I appreciate that. Thank you so much. So I want to go back and piggyback off of what you were talking about real quick about um, the Microsoft Netflix deal, right? Because you brought up a really good point about maybe they're going to Microsoft because eventually down the road, they want to do more uh, video games about their, at their IP or whatever it might be. Do you have any thoughts that they're, tr maybe they're trying to align themselves to just be acquired by Microsoft. I mean, Apple has Apple plus and they're creating their own content. Microsoft really doesn't have a visual content arm. Wouldn't that be the easiest acquisition ever and just implement it worldwide? Like they already are. Yeah, I think it makes sense. Highly speculative, of course, but uh, we've seen with the still pending acquisition of Activision Blizzard, right? So we're talking about almost $80 billion acquisition for Activision Blizzard. Uh, until this one goes through, I don't think there is anything in play, right, for Netflix, uh, because Microsoft cannot start an even bigger acquisition when the first one is not confirmed. Uh, so at least in the short term, I don't think it's in play, but it does uh, seem to me like it is phase one of a longer term uh, initiative between the two companies. Uh, and yes, down the line uh, could, could be uh, the some M&A implication, but again, it doesn't have to necessarily because if, if they do partner in a way that involves Game Pass and Netflix, I'm just seeing this as an example, it's almost as big of a deal as an M&A for a Netflix shareholder, right? And you have ramifications that can really dramatically change. Uh, the adoption uh, pattern, at least for, for the U.S. consumer. So you, you have uh, almost it's just an extra sweetener, maybe. Uh, I don't know if it would be such a sweetener, though, because Netflix is right now trading at about, what, uh, 15 times operating income. Uh, if you look at the um, constant currency, which is really the only thing that matters because that, that's, that tells you about the health of the business, they were growing at 13%, right? So the business is still chugging along. You know, they passed... This, uh, they have transitioned beyond their uh, cash intensive portion of their growth strategy. Now they have the content uh, that, that really justifies those subs to, to, to pay each month. And now they are, they are free cash flow positive. So I was looking uh, through white charts on Seeking Alpha, the uh, margin trends of the company, right? They went from something like uh, uh, close to break even basically to a 41% uh, gross margin and 20%-ish. Operating margin. This is a good business. The, the question is growth leverages, which can happen when you partner with a large company like Microsoft because they can 
at content or uh, practice the art of the bundle, as I like to call in general, in the app economy, people like to mix and match bundles. And so the potential is there for growth leverages, but the business itself right now is doing just fine. Mm, good point. I do want to, uh, I would, I want to get your take on, uh, the, re- the involvement of hiring or slowing down of hiring around these companies, right? We've had Netflix come out and be like, Hey, if you're not, you know, up to speed with our content, you might as well leave. You have Apple with the big report that affected the market pretty poorly yesterday saying that they're slowing down hiring, not cutting. They're just slowing down hiring for anticipation of what's to come ahead. What do you think about that? When you think about these tech companies and you start hearing news like that? Uh, yeah, that's a great question. When, when I look back at, uh, you know, earlier this year, we had UiPath, uh, if you are not familiar, it's an automation software company. And uh, they were kind of the first software company that was announcing, oh, uh, shit has hit the fan in Europe. Uh, the war going also because they report you know, a month later than everybody else. And so they were very early in announcing, okay, we're going to cut costs. We're going to lower guidance. We're going to adjust everything. And so... Now everybody is kind of catching up and with the strong dollar coming in, everybody realizing, okay, we have to adjust our cost structure if growth slows down. Uh, So to go back to the initial point I've made about looking in the past, what happened historically, I definitely look back at a company like Salesforce. I love Salesforce because uh, uh, from learning what happened in the past, it's a very steady growth company in the past 15 years. And so we can really see how the valuation has evolved and how they took a hit from either revenue growth or operating margin perspective. And so to answer your question, I would use Salesforce and I would go back to 2008, 2009. Uh, At the time, Salesforce growth basically was cut in half from 50% growth year over year down to 20. So really, when you think about it, this has yet to happen, right? This, if we have a recession as bad, as 2008, I don't think it will happen, but what do I know, right? Nobody knows, you pointed that out. So if we do if we do see uh, this kind of slowdown, what happened back then? You'd be surprised. Operating margin of Salesforce actually went up in 2009, right? Because at the time they were making a billion dollar in uh, annual recurring revenue, and they were growing their headcounts at 40% year over year. So even if you face a revenue growth slowdown with just a hiring freeze, not even letting people go, you're already completely changing your cost structure because that's the main cost, right? Headcounts are their main cost. These are not companies that have inventory to deal with supply chain challenges. They have other kinds of challenges, but just by doing a hiring freeze, you're already monitoring. I don't know what I don't know, I don't want to take the risk of ending up with really a situation where I have to let go people. So let's just do a hiring freeze. And at the speed of, you know, companies that grow today, like Datadog or CrowdStrike, just not expanding their workforce would be enough for them to expand their margin very, very fast. And then they can reassess, right, every quarter as the story develops. Uh, but again, Jimmy Diamond doesn't know. Jay Powell doesn't know, so they don't know either, right? And they, they are trying to be prudent. I want to see that in management team. You know, the past 12 years, I was in charge of forecasting for my company. And I'm going to tell you what, it's very hard. It's incredibly hard to forecast anything. In the gaming industry, I would say it's even harder because we're talking entertainment and you, you never know with pop culture how things are going to pan out. But in general, forecasting, you keep having to tweak every other week or month, uh, your perspective, and you have to accept that you're going to be wrong most of the time, right? 
Got it. And and just want to remind everyone watching right now to, uh, you know, add any questions you might have for us in the chat. Definitely want to encourage you guys to have a voice here. So if you guys have any questions, if it's on, I think, YouTube or, or uh, LinkedIn or even here in Zoom, drop in the chat. Question I have, uh, and actually before I jump into this, I just checked. So I apologize for like moving my head a couple times there. But I made a TikTok about an article that you wrote um, back in January, the Glassdoor uh, it, it was a really cool breakdown showing that the glass door companies have like outperformed the S&P 500. And I made a video about that, got like 800,000 views. It was really interesting. So I just realized that that's you really the one that wrote that. Um, oh, well. But wow. I, I also Thank you. Wanted, yeah. yeah, no, for sure. And, and I also want to share, or I guess ask this question now too, a question I like to ask uh, on my podcast to, to, to thought leaders in, in their in respective industries is, is you know, if we, if we kind of like fast forward 12 months from now, and people say, oh my gosh, this trend was so obvious. Why didn't I think about that a year ago? Like what trend do you see right now in tech or, or just in whatever secular growth trends that you're really seeing? Like what is so obvious right now that people aren't paying enough attention to? Yeah, so that's a good question. There are so many to choose from. It's like choosing your favorite child. Uh, so I'm Name them all. Anyway. I'm here for it. I'm ready. Let's it's, go. It's fun. We're, yes. Uh, so I, I would say the first one that pops in my head when you say that remains infrastructure and say security. Um, just because I, I feel like, especially in the current context with valuations, right? So uh, just a quick word on valuation would be, and, and this is probably the easiest way to think about it, uh, using again Salesforce, they've been trading at six to 12 times sales for the past 15 years, except for one year, 2008, where they traded at three times sales, okay? Uh, 2008, 2009, but otherwise, by investing in Salesforce, which by the way, you make a killing, up 20x, you know, in the past 15 years, but you could buy Salesforce from six to 12 times sales. Guess what? It's at six today, a little below that. So could it fall down to three? Absolutely, yes. Is it already the cheapest, um, uh, except for one year, the past 15 years? Yes, it is the cheapest it's been. So we set aside, you know, all these uh, price collapsing, rising. So we forget about the bubble, the pre post COVID, everything. We just focus on the facts, right? And so using that, I've rather think, okay, there are other software businesses right now that are also on the very low end of their valuation spectrum using Salesforce as an analogy, right? And so when I think about what's going to absolutely crush it in the next 10, 20 years, an equivalent of investing in Salesforce back then, uh, yes, three companies I want to use as examples because they cover different topics uh, would be CrowdStrike in the security space, just because they, they brand themselves as the Salesforce of security, right? Being first in their domain, which is security, having a 100% cloud approach, right? So that's, that's one I would give you. The second one would be in the DevOps space in general. There are so many companies to love in this space, but uh, that would be Datadog, which is really making DevOps work uh, collaboratively with other departments and making sure that people are successful in, in combining observability uh, with other aspects. So this is a lot of jargon. Uh, this is enterprise software. That's also why I, I run a premium service on Seeking Alpha is to share that knowledge. But basically you have these two. And the third one would be Snowflake. So also in the cloud space, in the data space, uh, but connected to basically how data is shared among company. Data is the new oil, right? So it's a very important trend. Uh, it goes without saying, I'm not teaching you anything here, but 
I'm, you know, it, I think it's Cheryl Sandberg who said something along the lines of, if you find a rocket ship, don't ask where your seat is, just jump on it, right? And so uh, she was referring to Facebook at the time. And so when I look at Snowflake right now, which I know is a polarizing stock because it's uh, one of the highest valued company right now on the public market, um, something like 20 times forward sales, right? So most people would stay away from that and I completely understand. The thing is, it's not for everyone. First of all, it has to be about position sizing, right? And realizing what risk you're willing to commit to uh, a stock that has such a high valuation. But when I try to look at a company like Snowflake, I think, okay, they're on track to be the fastest company ever to reach 10 billion in annual recurring revenue. Okay, and so that's a $40 billion company today. And when I look at Salesforce, Adobe, who did not grow as fast to achieve the same result, they are today, you know, 150, 200 billion, depending on the, the time of the week you check because it's a very volatile market. But so I'm like, okay, what are the odds if I try to project myself 10 years from now? That snowflake with the current pattern you see in the revenue growth in the way they are they are gaining traction is not a 200 billion dollar company in 10 in 10 years and i find very hard to argue against that i find it extremely hard to defend that it's not going to become that so many things can go wrong uh, but when you're looking at a company that has the balance sheet the cash flow and is basically in in control of its future in terms of there is no you know supply chain challenge is going to get in the way there is they could have a slowdown but they can monitor their cost because they, they monitor it in real time so that's three companies i'm giving you that are in three different domains right uh, but coming from an analytics background i do value really that data sharing aspect of snowflake and how they are really bringing insights into different space uh, and combined with security which is the most obvious i would say like Duh, 10 years from now, yes, cybersecurity was increasingly important. It's not new, just like investing in Netflix in 2016. Uh, we all learned about CrowdStrike with the DNC uh, way back when. And so investing today, you could still, I think, do very well, even though everybody's aware of it. So follow-up question for you, because um, you just you touched on something that kind of strikes me, right? Data is the new oil, just like you said. And you mentioned these companies, but also... Isn't it more of who analyzes the data best? I'm kind of curious, like do one of those companies that you're talking about, like Salesforce, right? They have the platforms that probably help people analyze the data in a way that they can turn around and get an ROI off of it. So out of those companies you mentioned, or maybe a company you didn't mention, do you have one that you think is like the best company out there right now and going forward that is just helping people understand their data so that they can turn around and make it into revenue? Yeah, it's, you know, it's going to be so different depending on the industry you're trying to serve, right? And so people are going to use different aspects. And, you know, uh, there's a lot of chatter right now about Unity because they are in the, uh, they just acquired Iron Source and this is a play in the ad tech industry. So the value of data in the ad tech industry is going to be very different than uh, analytics around, you know, user acquisition retention for uh, a game, for example, that doesn't have ad revenue. So depending on the company, you're gonna seek very different insights and feedback. 
so I don't want to I don't want to say there is that one company specifically that would that would tailor to all of these needs. Uh, but if I if I had to pick one, because you know it's fun, might as well we're here. Uh, I would say uh, MongoDB is one of my favorite because of the way they change the way we put data together. So for those who don't know, MongoDB is uh, is using a relational database angle, and when you we're all familiar with just the way. Um, uh, when you think about databases, ADP uh, using you know all the old school way of putting just rows and Excel and steroid together, and uh, MongoDB is really taking it to another stage. And I like the potential as well. I would put it in the CrowdStrike realm of potential, and also cross-referencing data and boosting the capacity of your data uh, by by changing the way you put it together. So that would be one of my favorite there. That's Love awesome. That. Love it. Love it. I, uh, I think I, I remember it was back in, geez, whenever they IPO'd Amplitude, AMPL is their ticker. Um, and uh, people were comparing them to MongoDB, but they kind of had a crazy volatile sell-off there after their guidance got chopped. So not going to bring that up. It's a, it's a sore spot for me, actually. But um, I think it's, it's, I love the take on uh, MongoDB. Thank you so much. Of course. Yeah, yeah. I didn't, I didn't invest in Amplitude. Sorry, go ahead, Daniel. Oh, no, go ahead. Please share. We're here for you. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I was just saying for, for us, and I didn't invest in Amplitude. I tend to be like very cautious with new IPOs. That's kind of a, a place where first six months, I don't even try because I, I just want to see how it goes. And, you know, the, those first two quarters where you're supposed to really clearly beat expectations. Otherwise, something is really off in the, the buildup to the IPO. And so it's very hard, you know, uh, we all subscribe to FOMO magazine, I guess, especially working of Seeking Alpha and having all these news coming at us. And so a way to, to avoid that is for me to say, if it's been less than six months that the company is public, can't even touch it. After six months, let's come to the table and look at the numbers. So I want to see at least two quarters uh, to, to form an opinion. I like that rule. I need to, uh, I need to start Robin following Hood. that one. <laughs> Robin. <laughs> Anybody that, everybody should not touch Robin Hood, right? Anyways. Um, all right, guys, we're coming up on time. Let's go ahead and get on out of here. Josh, if you're still in the back, throw up that last slide for me. Thanks for joining us, everybody, today for Stock Market Live. I am Daniel Snyder. That is Austin Hankwitz, and that is Bertrand Segwin. He runs App Economy Portfolio here on Seeking Alpha. It's a marketplace service. You can go to our site and check it out. You can also get in contact with us across LinkedIn, Twitter. And until next week, y'all stay safe out there, and we'll see you Wednesday, 1 p.m. next week. See you guys later. Come on.